Hello and welcome to Gotta Get Out of This Town, a 2000 pop punk and emo pop retrospective podcast. I am as always Elaine, and with me is Fletcher and Adam. And as always, we are diving into the years that go from 1999 to 2013 and taking a look at every record that charted and that is classified as pop punk or emo pop on Rate Your Music. I specify Rate Your Music because once again, today we're in the I Can't Believe It's Not Actually Pop Punk Club. Yay! I found after we were done that this is classified in places as power pop, which is a genre I was unaware of. Power pop is like, you know, Fountains of Wayne, OK Go. I wouldn't even call this power pop. This is more like butt pop rock. Butt rock and pop rock mixed together. Butt pop. Butt pop. Butt pop. Yeah. The thought of power pop just made me imagine Superman belting out Kelly Clarkson tunes, and that was pretty good. Oh, it makes me think of a superhero who gets their powers from soda. Well, yeah, we haven't said that, but today we are talking about American Hi-Fi by American Hi-Fi. I think that's one of your favorite things to do on this show is repeat a self-titled album. <laughs> because self-titled albums are dumb. Yeah. At least, you know, some of self-titled albums have like an alternative name, like Metallica by Metallica which is also called the Black Album, which is related to this album, as they have the same producer. Or the three Weezer albums that were called Weezer, or the four Peter Gabriel albums that don't have a name, but get called things based on their photos. Yeah, but whatever Weezer does is inherently dumb, even if they have, like, an excuse for it. Do they have an excuse for the blue, green, teal, black albums? I could see them having an excuse for making the bl- the blue album or whatever, and you know that's a name that you can refer it to. Once they've done about ten colors album that are self-titled, they don't have an excuse anymore. Or they should be for kindergartners, because that's an easy way. Which album is this? That's the blue album. The Deer Hunter, which is one of my favorite bands, did a bunch of AP named around colors, but they were actually named around colors. They weren't just like Deer Hunter, Deer Hunter, Deer Hunter, Deer Hunter. They were the 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 black AP, the the white AP, the yellow AP, and so on. There's a difference. Having not heard of that band before, I was very worried you were about to say, much like the Deer Hunter, one of my favorite movies, and I didn't know where that was going. No, no, this is Dear Hunter, as in D-E-A-R-E. No, wait, I misspelled that. You, you, you get what I'm saying. I do know what you're saying. Also, now I want to have a Michael Camino film festival. Anyhow, does any of you had any prior experience with American Hi-Fi? By American Hi-Fi, before this podcast. Yes, because they were all over the American Pi-Fi series. <laughs> were they? Yeah, they were in two, maybe three of the soundtracks to those films. 
Okay, cool. I'm pretty sure that I'd never heard any of their music before or them, but I I think I've heard the one song on the radio at some point. I think we've sung the intro to the song about four times in the last episode. I don't know how many survived the edit. We did keep referencing it because it's the only song most of us knew. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the flavor of the week, guys! <laughs> flavor of the week. W-E-A-K. To keep in the theme of dumb puns. Speaking of dumb puns, how about we talk about their history? By the way, we entered the year of 2001. Are you excited? Knowing where things are going? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Excitement. Joy. How old were you, Adam, in 2001? Um. Let me. <laughs> don't, don't ask me to do math on the air. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh, boy. This answer is going to hurt. Minus ten. <laughs> Three. <sighs> okay. See, I got that. And then I was like, what? There's no way I was three. I was three. <laughs> okay, now I, I guess it's explain why you don't know the one song by American High <laughs> Yeah, it didn't really have a long tail. That makes sense. But yeah, let's delve into American Hi-Fi history, which includes a lot less slavery than the regular American history. Well, that's because this is history fistery. History fistery? Yeah. Not fistery history? No, no, it's hi-fi. Mm-hmm. That's what it stands for. The frontman and founder of American Hi-Fi is Stacy Jones, born in 1970, and he grew up between Boston and London. I couldn't find many public info about his background, but given that he literally is quoted as saying, well, getting into Berkeley is not hard if you have the money, I can assume he comes from a relatively well-off background. He was mainly a drummer, and during the 90s he will achieve success with Another band. During the 90s, he was the drummer for indie rock band Letters to Cleo, which I am not particularly familiar with. I don't know if any of you is. They were in the craft. The the cheese? No, no, the, the craft is in the movie about sexy witches. Oh. I am more familiar with the cheese. Mmm, cheese. During breaks between touring with the band, he starts to learn the guitar. He actually tells the story that they were on like a tour bus and he just like wakes up from sleeping and outside of the window he sees like, you know, those cheap bundles that it says, you know, $50, get a guitar and a book to learn how to play guitar. And he was like, why not? I'm gonna learn how to play the guitar. So he starts learning the guitar, jumps with some friend in the Letters to Clear rehearsal studio in Boston which slowly, bit after bit, 
leads up to the first lineup of the band being born. This includes Stacy Jones on rhythm guitar and voice, Jamie Anderson on lead guitar, Drew Parson on bass, and Brian Nolan on drums. Initially, they named themselves BMX Girl, but eventually, after a chance encounter with Keith Richard in a bar, they are recommended the name American Hi-Fi. To be fair, that is far from the worst way a story I met Keith Richards in a bar ends. Really, that's far from the worst way a story that involves the word Keith Richards ends. Hmm. Remember when he was in three Pirates of the Caribbean movies? I do. Yeah. Wait, was he in three of them? Yeah, he came back after three. Wasn't Paul McCartney one of them? Because they couldn't get Keith Richards back? Also, yes. I don't remember any of this. How many Pirates of the Caribbean movies are there? At least four. Five or six, I forget which. Oh, holy shit. And they're threatening another one. Oh no. Much like Joss Whedon, we have not purged the specter of the 2000s from the world yet. Hmm. In 1997... Stacy leaves Letters to Cleo to join another successful indie rock act, Veruca Salt, and gets into a relationship with Veruca Salt's frontman, Nina Gordon. American Hi-Fi will eventually, during this period, record a cassette demo and start moving it around some labels. But Stacy, being the person who's been in two hot bands of the 90s, is the one who finally gets them the ability to show a bunch of A&R people their uh, rehearsal. So... Outpost Records, Veruca Salt's label, picks them up for an album. The band has, at this point, only done demos and rehearsals, not even playing a single live show, and they have a record contract. It was the 90s, and Nirvana damaged every executive's brain. (laughs) F. Yeah. About a year after that, in 1998, the Veruca Salt thing happens, which is the bubbling tension between Nina Gordon and Louise Post basically causes the band to implode. A mix of just, like, interpersonal issues and just the band not actually being able to live up to expectation that the record label put on them, which caused a bunch of stress altogether for everyone in the band. This is disastrous for everyone involved in that for about 10 years after that, most of the people involved in this thing will write songs about how shit everyone else was to them. Yeah, listen to Veruca Salt's Black and Blonde, for one. Nina Gordon goes and do a solo project, and soon after that, Stacy Jones sort of also leaves the band, because, you know, your girlfriend just left the band. It would be awkward for if you were staying in the band. The implosion of that band happened the year I was born, so I'm taking credit for it. Also, can I just say, as a general rule, never fuck your bandmates ever. Never. Do you know what the only successful case of this in history has been? It was Fleetwood Mac, because everyone was coked up to the gills and fucking everyone else, and it was the 70s. That's it. And they still imploded after that. Yes, but we got some of the best music in rock. Also, it probably didn't hurt that that was, like, a complete hippie, free-love fuckfest fueled by all the drugs in the world. But yeah, so this breakup fuels a ton of just, like, songs about it, and uh, theoretically, this record, American Hi-Fi by American Hi-Fi, Stacey Jones mentioned that a lot of the writing on this record is inspired by witnessing that explosion of anger all around. 
I, I don't see it, but... Mm. I can see it on a few lyrics on this album. Let's put it that way. We'll get there. But in 2000, Nina Gordon moves to work with Bob Rock at his studio in Maui, Hawaii, for those of you who don't know, to record her first solo album, and Stacy is brought on as a drummer. He's still on Outpost with American Hi-Fi, though, so he decides to use this time to actually record a record for the contract he got years ago. He invites the rest of the band with them in Maui, where they play some shows, and immediately when Gordon is done with her record, they start working with Bob Rock, because, hey, we're already here, why not? And we have Bob Rock, the guy who produced Metallica Black Album, why not? Yeah. By the way, may I mention how Bob Rock sounds absolutely like a fake name and it isn't? Yeah, it kind of owns, actually. Yeah, it's sort of, like, great. <laughs> yeah, Th this this is my uh, um character. He works in the music business. His name is Bob Rock. <laughs> he recorded the Black Album. It's a metal album. You know, <laughs> it does sound more and more like a joke the more you say this. <laughs> also, the Black Album is not a metal album. Um, I like I like the joke. I that's not a metal album. Really? We're not going to say the Black Album is metal? No, it's like hard rock at best. Alright. I am not going to dive into metalhead dichotomy, but I would definitely have thrown that one under. Let's put it that way. The Black Album is the album where metalheads start saying that Metallica sold out. So it's not a metal album. Alright. It is also not that good of an album. It's overrated. Oh, speaking of giant cans of worms, and let's segue off of that, in the middle of the <laughs> recording, Outpost folds due to a massive merger of Interscope, Universal, and A&M. Fortunately for the band, they did not cut their funding, and they were able to finish their record and then shop it around to other labels. So they ended up on Island. And yeah, they have a record. They're, they promote it, and the first single for the record ends up being Flavor of the Week which originally was actually written from the female perspective, but Bob Rock told the band, no, 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 you need to write him from the male perspective about a girl, because that's how popular songs go. To be fair, this is basically just a follow-up to Teenage Dirtbag years later. <laughs> oh, God! It is! Tell me I'm wrong! You're not wrong! It's... I didn't think about that, but yes. Bob Rock knew. <laughs> Bob Rock was that teenage dirtbag, and he wanted to atone. Oh my god. And the teenage dirtbag's name was Albert Einstein. <laughs> and everyone stood up and clapped. The song ends up being a fair success. You know, it gets promoted, it gets a video, and it debuts at 69 nice. Nice, on the Hot 100 chart, and stays there for a while, eventually topping at 41 
being just one single position shy from officially being a top 40 hit. This song will chart around the Hot 100 during the same time in which another song that we already talked about, Eve 6, Here's to the Night, also floated around the 100 chart. Sadly, that really terrible song by Eve 6 will always be about 10 to 20 places higher than Flavor of the Week, because radio loves shitty slow rock songs. Oh, you're not going to mention the thing that you wrote in the notes, which is see drops of Jupiter hanging around the top five? Oh, sorry. I forgot about that. Yeah. You had to remind me of drops of Jupiter, so I'm upset. <laughs> Yay, Train. Train is one of those bands that makes me incredibly upset on various levels, but the one that will always piss me off most is that they reference Mr. Mister in one of their biggest singles, and more people have listened to that single than could tell you who Mr. Mister was. A lot of people will say that, you know, when they did their comeback, Train was worse. Train always sucked. I'm sorry to break your dreams, people. Train always sucked. Yeah, go listen to Meet Virginia again and tell me they had a great period. <laughs> That's right, I remember Train's original breakout hit, and it's still crap. Sits here quietly until you stop talking about old people music. The second single by American Hi-Fi is far less successful than Flavor of the Week. It doesn't really chart anywhere. It's another perfect day. And yeah, it doesn't even really chart anywhere, despite featuring a video with Patton Oswalt in it. It was a real trip doing research for this album, and all of a sudden, I see a 20 years younger Patton Oswalt. Yeah? Like, I just did not see that coming, and then all of a sudden, what the fuck happened here? They had budget behind their videos. We'll talk about when we get to the songs, but yeah, the, the, their label was definitely behind that. Clearly, they got three years from getting a record contract to put it out. I mean, if you listen to the interview with the guy, which by the way... As a nice change of pace from our usual, you know, people that we talk about in this podcast, he seems like a completely decent guy. Like, he currently works as a, you know, behind-the-scene person for Miley Cyrus. He's the anti-Mitch Allen? Yeah, yeah. He mentioned that, like, at the time, you would take a year to record the record if you were, like, on another pop contract or whatever, because they would just throw money at you, which is interesting. But yeah, let's go to the record. This is this is the history. They made a record. They they took three years to like have Stacy Jones be in all the other bands that he was in, and then he went to make a record. And it's this record, American Hi-Fi, my American Hi-Fi, which we will listen to now. with Surround. This is not pop-punk. Yeah, I expected something very different out of this album because you got to the listen before me and said, 
oh great, Rate My Music screwed us again, but this was a nice alt-rock start for me. Sure, it is just not pop-punk, not what this podcast is about. Yeah, I, I like how every time we drop into my genre, I'm suddenly the really upbeat one for the week. <laughs> That's valid, though. It's just very amusing to me that every time Elaine is like, oh, I got tricked again, and I'm like, oh, man, it's a secret surprise. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, this is, I, I, you know, this is not terrible. This is sort of like alt-rock, butt-rock, butt-pop. That's like a fairly cliche bridge, but it's fine, it's listenable, it's just not pop-punk, and this thing gets me, because it's like, what the fuck, rate your music, what the fuck are you doing? That's what you get for crowdsourcing your podcast, yo. Haha, <laughs> I'm the rate your music gremlin. So here's the thing, rate your music has a crowdsourced genre function where people vote on genres, mm-hmm. and I am baffled by how many people can be wrong. I'm not. <laughs> I am literally baffled by how many people can be wrong on a thing as simple as classifying a thing as pop-punk. I am not surprised. The reason for that is, how many people are voting on these things just based on singles? If all you had to go on was flavor of the week, you'd be right. So American Hi-Fi by American Hi-Fi on Radio Music has 400 people who rated... The whole record. They gave a rating to the whole record. How many people have voted on the genre? 18 people, including me, have voted on the genre. 16 people were wrong. 16 people were wrong. (laughs) You know, if that's the worst we have to deal with in 2020, I'm okay with it. (laughs) What if QAnon were just 16 grandmas arguing on Facebook? Boy, that sounds good. Yep. Uh, yeah, that suddenly got dark. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, Surround is a good intro track to the album, though, because it's got energy, it's got a good beat. The lyrics exist, but I enjoyed the chorus quite a bit. Uh, I think this is a strong way to bring you in. I'll be honest, I haven't looked at the lyrics at all for this record. It's not going to come up much, but I will bring it up a time or two. The thing about the lyrics on this one is that they're just kind of middle of the road for the most part. There's nothing spectacular. There's nothing completely incomprehensible like that one band. Yes. So it's like, oh, okay, it's whatever. There's nothing offensive in it. There's, (laughs) I'm not doing a spit take when I look it up. It's, it's all right. Also, Stacy Jones is singularly to blame for every one of these lyrics. It says he wrote every track on this album. Yeah, he's the main songwriter. He writes all of the songs for American Hi-Fi. Who are still performing as of a few years ago. Yeah, and he has a couple of side projects, and is the stage director or whatever for Miley Cyrus and 30 Seconds of Summer. Yeah. Guy has a career. I mean, his songs don't sound like they were written by a 13-year-old, so I'm happy. Yes. I'll be honest, I found this extremely forgettable. As a whole lot of this record, I think I liked it less than you. I don't hate it, I don't think there's anything bad, aside from like maybe one song on this, but I don't know, partly it's because Desert Pass was going on, well, it's going on this week, which 
will not be going on by the time people listen to this, but I found myself very often just getting distracted and forgetting this record was on and having to, you know, go back and re-listen to the tracks. That's me every week. I did have to revisit a couple of later ones. I was like, oh, I'm actually going to like this album. Oh, boy. Yes, one of us, one of us. <laughs> I'm going to say this. It's not Offspring's Conspiracy of One, and that's a good thing. Yes. Let's go to the single, Flavor of the Week. Her boyfriend, he don't know anything about her. He's too stoned, Nintendo. I wish that I could make her see. She's just the flavor of the week. It's Friday. This is a smashing track. This is okay. I have a lot of fun with this. It's solid. I has one of the best lines in all of music, one of the most iconic lines in all of music, which is the singer going completely without any hint of an irony. He's too stoned, Nintendo. Yeah, I love that. That that that's iconic. That's great. The song is fine. It's okay. It's it's solid. It's a solid pop song. I enjoy it. I like the homage in the video. It's this is aimed directly at me, and this is one of my favorite pop punk tracks that we've had in the singles. First of all, yeah, the video opens in the sort of like quote unquote heavy metal parking lot, which is a caption that pops up on the video, which is a funny joke. Uh, And it's set in the 80s, and it's just like a bunch of heavy metal fans just like hanging around. And so first of all, the video opens with like a person giving an interview, like one of these heavy metal like fan people. And he goes like, oh yeah, fucking heavy metal rules. I love Ozzy, I love Priest, I love Scorpion, I love American Hi-Fi. They have like a cool version of their logo made in the styles of those 80s bands and he mentions another band after american hi-fi and i quite couldn't quite catch what it was dokken d-o-k-k-e-n heavy metal band formed in 79 split up in the 80s also i take it neither of you is familiar with the key joke of this video what what's the key joke of this video it's referencing an old underground film simply called Heavy Metal Parking Lot. The opening segment is straight up with all the band members dressed as people from the film, and that opening bit is basically a quote of it. They just made a little adjustment to it for their own. Heavy Metal Parking Lot is a thing that was tape traded for years. The documentarians kind of kept going back and using that format for different jokes over the next few decades. Uh, Monster Truck Parking Lot, Neil Diamond Parking Lot, etc. It's it's pretty fun. It's 17 minutes. It's a good watch if you just want to see a weird view into the era and what you got if you were that into a band like that. Glad we have an old person here to catch these references. 
American Hi-Fi with neither pop punk nor heavy metal, but definitely more leading on the, you know, on the it's closer to heavy metal than pop punk, I'll say. I have been humming this all week. It's incredibly catchy. I think it's a jam. There are a lot of weird lyrics on it, not in a bad sense, it's just like... He's too stoned, Nintendo. That, also she'll wash her hair, her dirty clothes are all he gives to her, which is, you know, the second line is fine, it's just like, oh, this is about a boyfriend that doesn't treat this girl right, so the only thing that he gives to her is her dirty clothes. I don't know what that she'll wash her hair line is referring to. Here's the thing, after they presumably have had sex she'll take a shower and then uh he will give her his dirty clothes to wear instead of like clean clothes her own clothes <laughs> okay i could see that i could see that um uh, yeah it's a, it's a fun song it's catchy uh, the the video is weird because again like it sort of follow the storyline of the song in in between this you know heavy metal reference where there's this girl that finds the boyfriend cheating with another girl but there's no comeuppance at the end she just looks sad at the end and it's just like oh this is nihilistic i mean i think they aimed more for the reference to the documentary than doing a story song they just kind of had to add something in there that that is that is completely fair it's just like interesting because there is still that plot line going through the video and it just doesn't it just ends with her being sad which is like ah uh-huh, okay I, i'm into it existence is suffering nothing will ever go your way you will die lonely and alone cool so what i'm gathering is you're the person who put the next track after this, where it starts with, I need a bigger mood to block out the sun. Before we move on to that, though, which I appreciate the segue, the pun doesn't make sense. I don't get it. Flavor of the Week, W-E-A-K. It ties in two ways. A, he's calling the boyfriend a weak, a piece of crap, whatever, you know, you're just a thing for him. And also, there is that final line, she makes me weak because the singer is longing for that woman. I keep on not catching these puns because my brain doesn't register that the word is spelled differently. I almost think that's why the final line in there, she makes me weak, is there, just so you have to think about that. Because it doesn't come up anywhere else in it. It's just, she makes me weak as the guitar fades. I actually never catch that line. I always thought he was saying she makes me weep, as in he is sad for her. Yeah, me too. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, I get it now. Yeah. I mean, she makes me weep definitely would have worked better with the nihilistic themes of the video. Ah... You kids and your nihilism and the world's gonna end.
heard of Big Mood? Now it's time for Bigger Mood. You've heard of Big Chungus. Now it's time for Bigger Chungus. Bigger Mood is too big for me. This is a very generic song. Yeah, even I turned on the record a bit on this one. I wrote, driven entirely by the guitar, but lyrically a ghost. Yeah. The guitar playing is pretty decent on this record. Oh yeah, the guitar is really running the show on a few tracks. There are definitely a lot of, like, you know, there's the video about, you know, 80s metal, and there's, like, definitely about a lot of influences from that on the guitar side. A lot of the solos are definitely, like, trying to sort of ape the 80s rock. Although more Guns N' Roses-ish than anything else, but you can definitely see that these dudes are older than the general people that we listen to on this podcast. By the way, I didn't mention this on air. The guy in the, fr- the the front man in the Flavor of the Week video was 30 when this record was recorded. I don't... My brain does not compute. He looks like fucking 16. Yeah. Again, that'll be me when I'm 30. Some people age well. It's a real trip. And again, he's been doing 10 years of touring and band drama at this point. Give or take. And the stress hasn't even aged him. The portrait of Stacy Jones... Yeah. Uh, I think all his aging is being passed on to Jimmy Fallon, who looks worse and worse by the minute. (laughs) Well, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Don't worry, as long as nobody watches Jimmy Fallon anymore, Stacey Jones is immortal. I thought that this song, melodically, sounded entirely too similar to the last one, in a way that I was just kind of like, oh, this is the same song. Which makes Flavor of the Week seem just, like, really, really, really long. And I didn't really like that. So it's like that thing that uh, Sum 41 did with their videos, which was weird. Anyhow, yeah. A A Bigger Mood is a real letdown of a track after a strong start. So for the listener pleasure here, we cut the segue that we're going to lead up to this track because I want to cut this bit of discussion. So I'm just gonna straight up say that the next track is safer on the outside. I was trying to give you a better segue. (laughs) Nope. Nope. All right. I decided we're doing it this way. All right. We're recording this live. I don't like this song. I think it's a completely fine slow rock song that makes me surprised that wasn't ever a single because this is the kind of shit that the radio likes. This is also the kind of shit that Adam likes. (laughs) Okay. Here's a thing that only Ellie, if anyone here is going to recognize this, will understand. This feels like a stabbing westward B-side. Hmm, I can see that. Yes. Yeah, I I mean, I also noted that this is not as painful as this kind of music tends to be. This is definitely superior to any slow track by U6. There are a lot of, you know, 80s rock influences on the guitar. But again, this is more of that, we've mentioned this a lot of times on this podcast, this is more of that 
Aerosmith, I don't wanna miss a thing kind of song. Also, this is the first of the tracks where it's like, okay, yeah, this is definitely inspired by some grudges in the Veruca Salt explosion. Oh, okay. Please tell me more. Well, here's some lyrics. I can't sleep, I'm disconnected, everything went wrong, and certain stars are sad and bruised like someone's cheating heart. Oh, okay, that's... that's very literal. Cool. Yeah, and the chorus is simply, Faded in the blackout you left me in, it's safer on the outside. I'm swimming in this kerosene, it's hard to breathe, the static's got me down. The whole thing kind of feels... yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's certainly safer to be outside of the band. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. I, I'm I'm glad that I'm not involved with the mess you made anymore. <laughs> yep. Yeah. There are far worse versions of this song. I, I don't like this. I cannot hate it because, again, I've heard Eve 6 slow tracks, and I think they are far worse than this slow tracks. This is definitely better than Eve 6's slow tracks. You enjoyed this track. Tell us about what you enjoyed about it, Adam. You want me to use words to express things? That's that's rude. Yes, that's generally how podcasts work. <laughs> that's not what I signed up for. <laughs> um, you can make a drawing if you want. I don't know. I just like the fact that it's just kind of chill. Okay. I very much enjoy it because, again, this one is a little more alt-rocky than some of the heavy metal influence, and if you give me a sludgy goth rock kind of thing, I'm going to be into it. I second that notion. American Hi-Fi is officially sludge metal now? Uh, there is a track that I refer to as sludge later on. Can you guess which? Look, I'm gonna be real, I am deferring a lot to my notes here because I cannot distinguish these tracks in my mind. I think a lot of this album, it's not bad, it just blurs together for me. I'd have to agree, some of it does blur together. Looks at Flavor of the Week in bigger mood. Oh, I'm not gonna say it's all distinctive. I've, I've said the final chunk of the album kind of fell flat for me, but still. Something, something, I'm a fool. That's the next track. Very much peppier after Safer on the Outside. If this was about 50% faster, this would have been the pop-punk track on the record. It does have a tiny bit of uh, Blink energy in it. Yeah, but it's slower, so I I can see it more being power-pop than pop-punk. It's not, it's, it's not as punky. 
if you slowed down Blink by half, they'd sound like this. I mentioned Flavor of the Week is the horrible aftermath of Teenage Dirtbag. This is just Teenage Dirtbag. Yeah. Oh, I'm longing for this girl, and eventually I ask her out. Yeah, she said, yes, we're going to see a show. That's it. <laughs> yep. It's fun. I like the guitar playing. I like the falsetto voice the singer does in this one. It's, it's fun. This is definitely one of the least good... Uh, songs about being a fool for love that I've heard. Especially because there's one named after that. Now I want to go listen to Love Fool, thanks. There's a lot of, like, really cheesy production on this track. Like, at some point the track just stops for almost like a We Will Rock You stomp feet and clap hands bit. It's cute. I don't hate it. Yeah. It's a fun listen. Yeah, it's, it's not bad. Yeah, there's a lot of cheesy stuff, like the falsetto and the, the, the beery, 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 beery riff, but it's all, like, in good fun. It all comes together for, like, a song that's sort of lighthearted and fun and has this peppy tone, and, yeah, it's very listenable. So, this is... One of the most distinctive things on the record. This is one of those things that I might mention again later, but I feel like... One of the things about this album is because it does kind of start blending into itself. If I had listened to all these songs separately, I think that I would really like almost every single one. But having to listen to them all together as an album just gets a bit old. I don't know. I think for me, I feel that at this point, aside from maybe Flavor of the Week, I feel their melodic work is a bit weak. No pun intended. But um, it's not terrible. I've we've definitely heard more nothing melodies on this podcast, but this is more poppy in intention than a lot of punk records that we've heard. This is not you know AFI where it was like literally like punk punk where they sort of went hard and melody doesn't really have to play into that. This is less hard than a lot of things that we've listened to in that regard. And it, at least in intention, it is supposed to be based more on melody and on choruses. And the choruses don't always quite click for me. They don't have a lot of them lack punchiness. And I feel that's sort of, that's sort of what makes it a bit bland. And that's sort of what makes the song, even singularly, not all of them really work for me. But again... I wouldn't call anything on this record bad. It's just like, if they want to be like a pop band, it feels like there's still like some some space to improve here. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where their next album falls on this scale, because I know less of that. Yeah, this is like lit, where it's just like someone on regular music called this pop punk by mistake, and now we have like about 50 records of a definitely not pop punk band. Next up is Hi-Fi Killer. I got a dis 
this is definitely another one of those Veruca Salt collapse songs. Funnily enough, it is not about the Hi-Fi murders, hmm. which are a thing Wikipedia tells me. Well, I learned something today. This is not about that. No, I I think it's interpersonal drama, especially with, uh, I gotta disappear, don't want to hear that sound on the radio. Yeah, we could all hum along because it's the same old song. This is the one that to me felt like sort of like a worst version of uh, Jimmy It Wars, Your New Aesthetic, because of, you know, the radio references and like... And stuff like that. Yeah, a lot of this track is basically just you're still doing the same old thing. You know, I I gotta get out of this party. Musically, I don't like this. This is one of the most post-grungy songs of the record. Very lit energy here. It's not my thing. I wasn't super huge on this one. Yeah, it's not. It, no. They have this very weird thing where they have. And this comes up on a lot of tracks where they have this very sort of like alt-rock, metal-ish verses. And then they have this saccharine melodies that have like this big tonal whiplash to them. And this is one of the songs that sort of does that when there's like very, you know, guitar-based verses and then you move into the chorus and it's just like this sort of peppy melody. And... Yeah, I think it could work if, like, the the happy melody and the choruses were better, but they don't quite make it work. So this song is sort of whatever for me. Underwhelming, but again, with the Veruca Salt thing, this is one of the tracks that screams, I'm just venting some demons. It would be more interesting if I had any interest in the Veruca Salt breakup. I remember a lot of it at the time, so that's why it's like... Yeah, that recategorizes this. This song is paired with a bigger mood for songs that sound kind of the same, that are too long, that I don't really care for. It's three minutes and six seconds long, and I skipped half of it. <laughs> I don't think it's bad, I just think a lot of the stuff sort of blends for me, and it's not, you know, it's not my genre. Well, that sounds like a personal problem, Ellie. <laughs> it is. But in the meantime, I'm actually very fond of Blue Day, as opposed to that green shit. This just in, Fletch hates weed. <laughs> Fun fact, I might have had some for the first time in around a year this weekend, and as a result, uh, $50 worth of Kit Kats are being delivered to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Which I put on a payment plan. Oh my god, Fletch. Yes. I think that was Jaime's way of going, well, it's not bad. If I do it in installments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, when those arrive, I'm going to be very happy. And then I'm going to have to figure out where to put them. Mm, Kit Kats. Fridge? 
I don't I don't know if we have that much space in the fridge. We put other food in there too. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to buy a second fridge, specifically designated as the Kit Kat fridge. It's going to be, hi, I'm Fletcher, uh, welcome to my crib, and then you're going to show us your Kit Kat fridge. Oh no, I'm going to show you the Kit Kat room. Oh, you can, you can like plaster the wall with them. Oh my god, I can use it as cheap sound baffling. Yes! It's the winter, it won't melt for a while. Hell yeah. Anyway... Blue Day is a really good track. I like this one. Pretty okay. I like the riff because it sounds like My Bloody Valentine, but without the 50 pedals that distort the riff. So, sure. I thought it had a real dandy Warhol sound to it. Yeah. I liked this one, too. The riff is fun. It's okay. It's an okay song. It has a bit more, as you mentioned, like a bit more of an indie rock from the 90s sound. Uh... As this really cool riff, which is ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da, which, again, that's a sort of a song from Loveless. This one sounds different from everything else on the album, I'm pretty sure. And I thought that that was like a nice little, nice little break. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's why it is probably my second favorite track on this album. Hmm. Because... This just has such a good sound that's unique, but it gels in a it's got an upbeat alt-rocky feel that just clicks. The lyrics get out of the way of everything. Honestly, I think that's kind of what I feel about the writing on most of this album is when the lyrics get out of the way, it's not bad. They don't improve a song anywhere on the CD. No. No. They improve Flavor of the Week because, you know, yeah, Nintendo. Nintendo! Okay, okay, that, that counts. But other than that. They're not good, but our floor is really low at the moment. I think Blue Day will speak for itself with whatever sample you slice in, and the people will understand. Yeah, has a cool riff and a different sound. It's pretty okay. I don't think it's like an amazing song. I don't think there's any amazing song on this record, but I also don't think there's any bad song on this record. It's pretty okay. I would like to see if what happens on The Art of Losing sounds more like this. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I am curious to see this band evolving. Honestly, I want to hear the next Lit record. Same. Speaking of Lit, you've heard of My Own Worst Enemy. Now it's time for My Only Enemy. Also, I like that the concept you've pitched is that the members of Lit have destroyed everyone but their final enemy. In one year's time, they used their rock superstardom to clean up loose ends. Yep. They probably used the cops to do it, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
Well, that's the episode, folks. We're gonna be back next week with... Dashboard confessional. Yeah. Anyhow. My only enemy is wrestling entrance music. Very generic yelling song. A low point, but not terrible. Tell me that I'm wrong. This is literally like, you could definitely see like, generic muscle dude number 20 in like 2003 when McMahon was signing every bodybuilder on the planet. More like early 2010. This is like 2011, where like people like Heidenreich were getting signed to WWE. They would enter to this music, like you know, you you, you know how like WWE had about like 20 theme songs written by Saliva. This sounds like Saliva. Also, because of the fact that my brain does mix the era this took place in with that concept, I'm just imagining Paul Heyman at a dying ECW show doing a speech to this. That would work, but... So, you know, his W had actually, like, had the music that this kind of song is ripping off, right? You had the Sandman entering to actual Enter Sandman. You had Rob Van Damme entering to actual Pantera. This sounds like the year after when there were, like, band ripping off that shit. Because, you know, WWE didn't have... Didn't want to pay the rights to Metallica for their music. (laughs) Ah, this, yeah. I don't even think this is bad. This is fine. Like, in that genre, this is completely fine. It's just, like, it's very amusing to me that this is, like, this is saliva. This is, like, wrestling, like, generic wrestling entrance music. I don't even hate it. It's just, like, that thing. It kind of speaks to the fact that there is some experience in this band that they can be flitting about between all these genres And the worst we're saying is, this music is not for me, not, God, what a disaster of an album. Honestly, I don't think there's a lot of variation. The Blue Day was different, but most of this record is sort of in that vein of post-grunge hard rock. This is a bit harder. This doesn't have the peppy chorus, which a, a couple of the songs have. But yeah, this is, I said it before, there's definitely talent here. I mean, everyone who's playing instrument is great. I think the melodic songwriting could take some improvement, but there's talent here. I don't think this these people are better what they're doing. But, you know, it's not generally my thing. I understand. Well, let's not wait for the sun, because it's getting late and we got another track to move on to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't wait for the sun. Soundgarden did a great song, one of my favorite songs from Super Unknown, which is Fell on Black Days. Yes. And this is just like a much worse version of that song. This is the one that I called very sludgy. Yeah, I don't like this one. I think it's boring. 
I think it sort of tries to do that grunge ballad thing, but doesn't have doesn't have any of the actual meat and like actual like emotion behind it. Mm. I think this song was written solely for that guitar break in the middle. Okay. And that's the best part of this track, so I'll give it that. But the problem is, there's another three minutes of music around it. <laughs> that is fair. Yeah. This is this is probably one of the songs that I just don't really care for on this album. When no one's speaking, I have fun with this one. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But yeah, Don't Wait for the Song is sort of slow and boring. It has like a good guitar part in the middle, but just go listen to Soundgarden. And since we talked about another perfect record in Super Unknown, another perfect day. Baby Patton Oswalt. Yeah, this has, this is a video where Patton Oswalt dresses as a corn dog man and has a history of fall from grace, falling from the great success of being the hot dog man. Yeah, Carl the corn dog's rise and fall is chronicled while we occasionally cut back to the band playing in a garage. It's wild. I can't remember what song this is because my brain subs out non-toxic instead. This is, you're not wrong, and I was actually going to say, this song is straight up non-toxic, but the video really carries it. Yeah, the video is great, it's really funny. Uh, this song, yeah, I noted down this song as another 2000 Aerosmith great ballad, which I'm not into. Yeah. But the video is great. It's a maudlin, competent tune that is saved by, this is... I've said before, I kind of hate pop-punk comedy videos. This one works because it's just a weird rise and fall documentary-style thing with a vicious final joke. <laughs> at the end, he's he's now just, like, cleaning tables at a different place called The Wienery, and they just splash a little what-happened-to-whoever thing over him. His Carl the Corndog's career never recovered fully, but he's slated to appear on an episode of VIP this fall. <laughs> that's so good. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> for, for Adam, VIP <laughs> was one of the final shows before syndication blocks kind of fell off. Uh, I presume you know what that is. Mm-mm. Syndication was you would make a show and it wouldn't be associated with a network. You were just a production company and all the lesser known networks or places that had time to fill would just license it from you and run it in a market. So like Hercules and Xena were syndicated. Most of the Star Treks were for years, etc. And VIP was one of the last ones of those. And the entire conceit is... Pamela Anderson 
bumbles into starting a PI slash bodyguard firm. And she just is the face of the place. It's named after her Valerie Irons Protection. But every week, all of her staff do the work, and then she accidentally cracks the case because she's too stupid and wanders through and, like, blunders it open. And that's the whole gag, and this went on for four seasons. It's awful. It's terrible. (laughs) It's terrible and not even in the fun kind of way that a lot of the campy shows of this type were. It's sub-Hercules The Legendary Journeys. It's sub-young Hercules, let's be honest. Yeah. Wow, okay. So yeah, this the song doesn't exist. Please watch this video. You will have such fun for about four minutes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really funny video again. It's like a corn dog person who apparently was super famous and now is falling from grace. All the little indignities they get. He literally finds out he's been fired because he stumbles off onto his lawn waking up and someone throws a paper that hits him in the face where the headline is Carl the Corn Dog Fired. Wow. <laughs> this is the cover of, I think, the New York Times. Damn. That's <laughs> good. Young Patton Oswalt, isn't it? Baby Patton Oswalt wearing a diamond-encrusted C around his neck in a corndog suit and shoving a guy into a pool. song happened yeah it's uh, sort of again it's a weird song in that the verse goes super hard musically but there is very little going on vocally like the melody on the verse is actually very awkward i don't it's weird and the chorus actually goes into like a super poppy bit and it doesn't quite work like there are seeds of good songwriting here and there there are like good ideas there are various parts that have like good melodic ideas but they don't quite click together like i like the chorus i like the hard rock riff that's sort of like velvet revolverish and it's dire that we reference velvet revolver two times in a row on this uh, podcast because uh, if we do it three times they'll appear oh no i don't want slash here (laughs) (laughs) dibs on duff But yeah, there are a lot of like tiny bits that are okay in the song. They're actually pretty interesting, but they don't quite click together. This feels like a Frankenstein monster of like four different songs stitched together. I'm going to say something that will upset you, but I want to hear your response to it. I think this is one of the most pop punk songs on this album. I disagree. I think this is way more hard rock than pop punk. I definitely think this is a track that would push people towards declaring the album as that status. It's lower and tangier than pop punk generally is. If it were sped up 20%, I think this would straight up be a pop punk track. Maybe, 
but I feel there's more that argument for I'm a fool than with this one. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I like the little bit like... That's like a cool melodic transition from the verse to the chorus. But just the different parts just don't click together. I can understand that. I This is the one that instantly made my brain go, Ah, I know what show I'm on again. <laughs> well, that's fair. But I suppose this is where we have to start talking about what is easily the song I have the least to say on this album. What about today? It's getting hard, but you don't even know. Maybe you can't see. What about it? What about no? Yeah, this lacks punch, this lacks melodic polish. This is the classic case of the worst track being shoved at the end of the record. If this were on an actual pop punk record, this would be the one that's like a minute and 18 seconds long, and they just kind of put it on there as padding, but it's not. It's twice that. Yeah. I mean, I don't have much to say. This is just, like, not a great song. It's not awful, but it's one of the songs where there's clearly less work that went into it. They should only be allowed to have one song referencing the day per album. And they already used that. Unless, I will make an exception to your rule, unless we are discussing a concept album like the Moody Blues, um, uh, Days of Future Past. See, that seems reasonable. I th are they a pop-punk band, though? No, but I would love to cover that. But every track on it is about a different part of the day. The day begins, dawn is a feeling, another morning, peak hour, the afternoon, evening, and then nights in white satin. There's a, there's an Arion record that it's all, all of the tracks are named Day 1, Day 2. It's a concept album. Uh, she also did something like that. In fact, I'm going to make that my suggestion for the week. You should listen to Days by She. I think we're done with the record. I hate when they shove the worst track at the end because it's just like, it's very anticlimactic to talk about. It's just like, well, this track is just there. There's, there's a whole other track. No, no, there isn't. Yeah, there is. Wall of Sound. I didn't listen to that one. <laughs> yeah, Wall of Sound was on the original release. Okay, give me a sec, give me five minutes. Okay, I listened to the song. It's actually the best song on the record, I think. It's quite good. It's interesting structurally. It does a bit of things differently in that there is a pre-chorus, but the first time it doesn't quite lead to a chorus. It just stands there lonely and does this, this weird thing. 
the verses are like very heavily grunge influenced again they sort of remind me of the slower songs by Pearl Jam or Soundgarden but then there is this very radio rock ballad like very emotional chorus which actually works in this because it's a bit harder there are there is a bit of interesting stuff going on with the guitar this is a really good rock song yeah see now you know why I had such a visceral reaction to you going, they put the worst track last. Yeah, I know. They put the worst track before the last one, but this is a really good rock song. I like this. Probably my top one in the album. Yeah. Honestly, between Surround and Wall of Sound, I think this is a band that has potential, even if not pop-punk potential. And I look forward to revisiting them just to see what a little more time together does for them. Look, they are 100% not pop-punk. I don't know what, what people who say they were pop-punk were thinking or feeling or what the hell they were doing. This is like a alt-rock, sort of post-grungy band with very, like, power-pop, pop-rock influences. Like, they go very poppy with their post-grunge. And, yeah, it's not generally my genre, but there are a couple of really good rock songs on this. This one, is this is one of them. A lot of this record blends together, but no, this is... Solid song. Really good song. Actually, this closer is... This closer is good. Yeah. It's an excellent finale. One of the better closing songs we've had on the podcast, I think. I didn't quite catch all of the lyrics, but lost in a wall of sound is a cool metaphor. Yep. Uh, Caught in the rush of the crowd, lost in a wall of sound, you were ringing in my ear. Yeah, let's do. Yeah, that's a really good chorus, honestly. Mm Mm-hmm. We all lived happily ever after. The end. Yeah, this is okay. I didn't hate this. I think a lot of this record blends together, especially the harder tracks. I think there's a lot of... there's some growing to do melodically. I think a lot of the choruses don't work. There is a reason why Flavor of the Week was a hit. That song is really catchy. Yeah, it's okay. It's a 2.5 out of 5. It's completely fine. Wall of Sound is a really good song, though. I think it's the highlight of the record, listen to Wall of Sound. I wouldn't necessarily recommend to listen to this whole record unless you're really into this kind of genre of music. This is not pop-punk, absolutely. But yeah, it's not bad. It's not... it's far from the worst thing that we listen to. And yeah, I can appreciate that. There are a couple of okay songs, one song that I really liked. Yeah. I, I don't have a lot of to, a lot to say on this. This is just one of those records that it's fine. It's okay. Yeah. I think this is going to be in the top half of what we've covered so far. Not because it's a thing I'm going to revisit over and over, but because I very much enjoyed when it's not in the grunge hole 
This goes to a lot of interesting places. I think it has one of the catchier singles we've dealt with by a mile. And as we said, uh, it has a great closer. It has a few gems in the middle I enjoy. I actually like some of the alt-rock stuff. It's just there are some tracks that really blend together and do nothing to stand out. Adam's comment that a few of these tracks feel like they merge into each other is not a highlight. I thought that, for the most part, it was fun to listen to. There weren't a whole lot of places where I was like, Ugh, why? And, you know, that's something that I value in music that I listen to. (laughs) (laughs) Not being awful. One of the things that Adam values in music. Yes, so, I don't know, it was fun. He's too stoned Nintendo. The end. Too stoned! I think a giant boost to this album is that this is around 10 to 15 minutes longer than some of the stuff we've covered by length, and most of the time I didn't really feel that length. She paints her nails and she don't know He's got her best friend on the phone She'll wash her hair, his dirty clothes all he gives to her And he's got posters on the wall Of all the girls he wish she was And he needs everything to her Her boyfriend He don't know anything About her He's too stone Nintendo I wish that So, Flavor of the Week taking off like a rocket means the record is quite successful, topping the 200 best-selling chart at 81. This will send the band into extensive touring with, I'm going to quote my co-hosts editorializing here, notoriously pop-punk bands such as Everclear, SR71, and Eve 6. (laughs) It's the I Can't Believe It's Not Pop-Punk Tour 2001. Also... I don't know if I can think of a concert I less want to be at than Everclear and SR-71 doing anything other than burning in a van. (laughs) I second that notion. I'm not... No thank. Yeah. (laughs) The only funny tidbit that I could find about the aftermath of this record is that during the promotion tour, the band had to do a lot of local radio station, and apparently local radio station love Hooters. So, uh, what's the name? Stacy Jones, the main guy, was complaining about having to be basically into a shitty Hooter every day and not being into it. That was amusing to me. I definitely know what he's talking about, because there's... A certain type, as someone who has grown up and lived in a market that has two to four alternative rock stations for years at a time, there is always the one DJ on staff who will say that we're having an event at, uh, local to us, it's In Cahoots is the bar in question, but it's also been a Hooters, it's been a Tilted Kilt, it's been, there's just that certain kind of sports bar that also has a room where you can hear everyone in the background go, yeah, during an interview, because someone scored a goal. F. 
<laughs> also, rip to the tilted kilt, dead due to COVID. <laughs> Anyhow, American Hi-Fi will return in 2003 with whatever the nest record is called. The Art of Losing. Nice. Keeping in mind that this will be the record that loses them their island records contract. That's a very apt name. <laughs> I'm real curious what it is going to be like, especially because uh, the art of losing, according to this bit about reviews, drew a lot of comparisons to Blink-182 and some 41. Uh-oh. Yeah, I haven't done a Mountain Goats reference this episode. You haven't. Um, Are you okay? I will get back my perfect body someday. Same song, different chorus. So, this was the episode. You can find us, as always, at getoutofthistown.com, and you can Twitter to us at G-G-O-O-T-T podcast on the Twitter. We are on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play. As of probably three weeks ago, we're also on Amazon Music. Time is weird. You can rate and review us wherever you feel like, mainly on iTunes. I don't know if you can rate and review us on other places. If you want to leave us, like, a, what's the thing, a Yelp review... Feel free to do so. I would love to see a Yelp review of our podcast. Me too. Did not bring me mozzarella sticks. Zero out of ten. Yeah. Next week, we will be talking about Dashboard Confessional, and I don't remember what the name of the record is. The Places You Have Come to Fear the Most. Neat. I think we're firmly an emo. <laughs> Yeah, that will be very different to everything else that we did so far. Interesting. So excited, because I remember the single off this one. I'm going to have fun. You can, you will have fun, but do you have anything to plug, Fletch? I have a website, hellscaper.com, that contains all of my projects. Neat. Do you have anything to plug, Adam? I do not. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at ACCTheMoon. And we do not have a Patreon, but if you want to support us, you can buy one or multiple thereof of our American High Fives from us. Due to COVID restriction, the sale of Italian High Fives has been restricted until national lockdowns are lifted. Good night, people. <laughs> Good night. Good night. I've got the time to stick around I'll catch my flight like a pop pocket And get out of this town What's on your mind? There's no point left to keep your image down Let's terrify Nintendo!
So this one kicks off pretty early in 1970, where Stacy Jones, the front it's man... Barn. <laughs> yes. I was explaining why he was... <laughs> Let me just retake this. That was... A... <laughs> I don't know why that one killed me. <laughs> in 1970, Stacy Jones, front man and founder of the band, is born somewhere between Boston and London. Buffy is not actually good. You just have nostalgia for it, people. He killed the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and for that, we must kill him. Meet Virginia. Yeah, no, fuck train. Yeah, Teenage Dirtbag is an all-timer. Cause I'm just a teenage dirtbag, baby. I need air. <laughs> I love that screech sing he does on the chorus. <laughs> 